Hey, I'm Lee from Dublin, Ireland. I'm Nick, Showtime Bellotta from Rhode Island. I'm Blake from Oakland, California. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. In middle school, Tavi Gevinson was already a superstar in the fashion-blocking world. I mean, I just kind of liked that, like, I would go to school and get bullied for how I was dressed or whatever, but then, like... So I would get photographed wearing that outfit at Fashion Week. Like, I just really relished in the irony of that. It's Bullseye. This week, Tavi Gevinson talks about how weird it gets when you're a teenager in the world of fashion and why her website, Rookie, is alternative, but not the way you'd expect. Is subversive because there isn't really another publication that speaks to teenagers this honestly. But it's not like subversive because we have girls in Doc Martens or whatever. Plus, Retta, who plays Donna on TV's Parks and Recreation, talks about why she steers clear of typecasting. I got a lot of auditions to play loud and ignorant, talking like this, you know, like stuff like that, which I, I just had a fear. I thought I wasn't going to get respect going out for those sorts of things. All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite critics to recommend cultural products worth your time. This week, we're joined by Kyle Ryan, the managing editor, and Nathan Rabin, the head writer of the AV Club. Hey, Nathan and Kyle, welcome back to the show. Hey, Hey. how are you? We're doing music this week, and Kyle, we're starting with this new album from a band called The Evens. The Evens are half Ian Mackay of Fugazi and half Amy Farina. Um, These songs are a a little more melodic than the classic Fugazi records, but they're still a little punk rocky. So let's hear a little bit of Wanted Criminals from The Evens' album, The Odds. Everybody got their badges, but they got no one to apprehend, no one to apprehend. Wanted criminals. So Kyle, t- tell me a little bit about this record. Well, it's the third record from the Evens, and it's a uh, it's a, a bit of a departure for them. The Evens started as almost a uh, rejection of volume, which is, is funny because you know, considering he spent you know thirty years playing very aggressive punk rock and, and various bands, uh, their first couple records are, are considerably more subdued than than that song. Uh, but this record, they, they've amped it up just a little bit, especially in the the first couple tracks. You can see. Uh, Ian maybe maybe getting the itch again in his uh, in his songwriting. Nathan Rabin, let's talk about a record from an entirely different genre. Uh, the new album by the Bay Area hip hop group The Coup called Sorry to Bother You. Now, the coup have gone through many iterations. At this point, the group is really the lead MC, Boots Riley. But this sounds very different from their 
classic early 90s Bay Area G-Funk sound. Let's take a listen to a little bit of the song Your Parents Cocaine. <laughs> the valet pointed me through the door. One more shot and you're on the floor. Cash talks yours as a lion's roar. Yes, choir, Christian Dior. I'm saying I'm full ambassador, but your friends obey like Labradors. I vomited on the Alpine decor. It's okay, your daddy's on the Baltimore. So that song has uh, this guy Justin Sane from the punk ba- band Anti-Flag on it. It is also very sort of dance-rocky rather than um, the classic funk that we expect from the coup. D- does the new sound work for you? Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely fantastic. And one of the things that I love about uh, the coup is they've always been more of a hip-hop group. That's kind of the foundation at the very beginning. But they've gotten more and more ambitious, sonically, musically, conceptually, with every project that they've done. And I feel like this kind of represents uh, the apogee of uh, their incredible ambition. Uh, things that's remarkable about the coup is it kind of started off in 93 with uh, Kill My Landlord, their debut album. Uh, and they were out to sort of uh, fix hip-hop's moral compass and save the world uh, while they were at it. Uh, and they've somehow gotten more and more ambitious, uh, having started uh, on an almost insane level of ambition. And it's interesting that we're talking about this in Ian Kai, because they are different genres, sort of. I mean, this is definitely the punkiest, most new wave thing uh, the coup has ever done. But I feel like the sensibility is very much the same. And one thing that uh, Boots Riley and Ian Kai have in common is they both kind of live their values. They live their Choose. And there's uh, no difference between the politics that they espouse and the way they conduct their careers and themselves. Nathan Rabin recommends the Coup's new album, Sorry to Bother You. Kyle Ryan recommends the new album from The Evens, The Odds. You can find Kyle and Nathan and their AV Club colleagues on the AV Club's podcast, Reasonable Discussions. And The Onion has a new book out called The Onion Book of Known Knowledge. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When she was in middle school, Tavi Gevinson was already one of the world's top fashion bloggers. For a while, she dyed her hair old lady gray until she was done doing that. She flew to fashion weeks and went to shows and got free clothes and the whole nine yards. She's 16 now, and her new project is called Rookie. It's an online magazine for teen girls that's about feminism and other important issues. It's capital I's, but also about glitter and stickers and what to wear to a party. Rookie is now also a book called Rookie Yearbook One, and Tavi is the editor. Tavi, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you first about the style rookie, which was mm-hmm. your, which was and to some extent still is, although it's rarely updated these yeah. days, your style blog. Um I fell into style blogging myself a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and um, every time I would get into the fashion industry part of it, you know, like I would talk to industry people, or mm-hmm. st- I would so consistently get creeped out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's me as and, – and sort of wonder – it would prompt me to get involved in these complicated – kind of who am I and what am I doing here? Yes, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, so I can't imagine having to go through that crap as like a 14 Hmm. or 15-year-old. Did you ever have to like correct your course when you were doing that? I mean, yeah. I The thing is, what I really liked about fashion that I often felt like 
wasn't understood by then the news outlets that would be like, 12-year-old fashion blogger. Like, what I actually liked about it was just the creative part of it. And the people I admired from that industry were, like, the obscure antisocial Antwerp designers who never give interviews or whatever. I mean, it. I don't know. I, maybe my parents were a little worried at first. It probably sounds a little horrific, like a 12-year-old, like, pouring over and worshipping these fashion magazines. But I wasn't like I was pouring over, like, horrible women's magazines. I was obsessed with, like, the British ones that had interviews with artists. But I guess it was a little hard to, like, sift through some of the BS. But I, I feel like that's a good <laughs> skill to have. And the earlier, the better, maybe. Um, I, well, let's, let's talk about what your parents thought of all this. Mm-hmm. Um, did they know about it from the beginning? No, I didn't tell my parents. And then once I was asked to be interviewed for the New York Times Sunday uh, Style magazine, I had to ask them and they were like, they didn't believe like my and my sister didn't believe me. And we were in like, the living room and I just kind of like said it casually and then they were like that's a really <laughs> stupid lie because if that was a lie that'd be a really stupid like I have a fashion blog that's not an interesting lie so they literally didn't that can't be true they literally did not know that you had a fashion blog no by the time I just that used the, times... the computer I mean I I have really great parents but they did not really like monitor our computer use at all and I guess I'm lucky that I ended up like you know, with the fashion magazines that were just interviews with interesting artists instead of, like, on, I don't know. I wasn't, like, fighting in the comment section of YouTube. So I turned out okay. What were and are the things about fashion that did appeal to you? Well, I mean, there were a few things. Like, on a really simple level, just the way clothes feel and just the way colors look together. Um, like, in the beginning, I think my style was more just, uh, like, a strange combination of proportions and colors and prints and textures, and that was just fun to, like, make a kind of collage in that way. And then I, you know, became really obsessed with, like, Twin Peaks and Virgin Suicides, and the idea of creating a kind of narrative and being some sort of character was really appealing to me. Like, I grew up doing community theater and then at the same time that I was interested in fashion I became obsessed with like Bob Dylan and that movie I'm not there and all his different personas and I became obsessed with Cindy Sherman and I think the idea of like being a different person every day was really appealing to me. What was your experience of the difference between what is your experience of the difference between that community that you build of like-minded people um, on the internet and then just school which is you know, for many of us, the last time that we will ever be in a big group of people mm-hmm. who are drawn together solely by circumstance, outside of, I guess, jury duty. <laughs> I mean, what I'm about to say is not supposed to be like a self-pitying or a sob story because I I had a, a generally good middle school experience. Like, this was not hard for me. But I did, you know, get bullied for, like, how I dressed, but also, like, I was opinionated and... um I mean, I just kind of liked that, like, I would go to school and get bullied for how I was dressed or whatever, but then, like, I would get photographed wearing that outfit at Fashion Week. Like, I just really relished in the irony of that. I thought it was great. Like, at the time in my life that I guess I was the most photographed, I was, like, in my most awkward phase 
but also in this context that's supposed to be like the most beautiful people in the world. And I just think that's great. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tavi Gevinson, the editor-in-chief of the online magazine Rookie. The site features writing from Tavi herself and contributions from people like Lena Dunham and Amy Poehler. Tavi just curated the site's first year of essays and photos for a new book called Rookie, Your Book One. I read uh, an offhanded remark in something that I think was from Anahita Lani, who's mm-hmm. one of the editors at, at Rookie and works with you and for you, um, where she said, she said, I'm just looking forward to getting yeah. to the point where people don't treat Tavi like a talking cat. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel like, do you feel like people have, have treated you like a talking cat? Um, yeah. I mean, well, because... I mean, I get it. It's, you know, a young person is doing a thing. And I think when someone is um, actually, that's not that amazing, a young person doing a thing. But I guess to some people it is. We've all read the kids did it column in National Geographic for (laughs) kids. We know young people are doing things. Yes. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I am looking forward to not. To people being less like wowza how did you do it but i i don't know that that's not like a big problem in my life it comes with the territory um and you know with rookie it requires people to actually take a better look at what i'm actually doing and so whenever i have done press stuff they're uh they've been more respectful and i'm older now and it's you know it, it's fine i'm okay <laughs> do you do you ever find yourself uh, worrying about what happens when you're not unexpectedly good for your age? Mm. Do you know what I mean? I think about that a lot. I mean, the thing that scares me the most is not becoming irrelevant, but rather just not being good at what I do anymore. I think that because what I do, editing, writing, I art directed the book, is so much about just, like, my own point of view, the best I can do to ensure that I am, you know, constantly growing and becoming stronger is, like, educate myself. So, I, you know, that's why I feel really good when I'm reading a book and getting excited about it or watching a movie that I really love and sort of putting all these things into the file cabinet of my brain. So I feel very much in control of the fact that, like, I will grow up and either I'll still have something to contribute or I won't. Um, In the worst moments, that's, like, horrifying. Um, That's a lot of responsibility. But, you know, it's better than, like, being a puppet. And I also feel like... I want to be happy more than anything else. Like, I don't think something needs to be validated by, like, public recognition to be something that you're proud of or that you had a really uh, good time creating or that was important for you to create. One of the things that I was, um, that I found interesting about reading the book is that I have gotten so used to uh, a dichotomy between 
I mean, essentially between, I don't know exactly what the lady version of this is, but essentially between jocks and geeks. That is this, this is a dominant cultural mode, is jocks versus geeks and equivalent. And um, I really liked the breadth of Rookie and the, mm. the fact that it wasn't just about what do us outsiders think. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'd like to do with it. Because I think, you know, for years there have been a there's been a lot of great art made about that. And there has been a space for people who feel that way. So many wonderful zines and blogs and movies and things. And I just don't feel the need to add on to that. Um, I just want to make something that is subversive because, you know, there isn't really another publication that speaks to teenagers this honestly. But that doesn't mean it's not like subversive because we have girls in Doc Martens or whatever. And you, you think about like these pop stars, too, who are like Katy Perry and Lady Gaga and their thing is like, just be yourself. And like, all of a sudden, it's okay to be weird. But I don't think like, People feel weird because they want to dress like Lady Gaga. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is like getting all too jumbled now. But basically, I thank you for what you're saying. And that's what we try to do. And it helps also that each month on the site is a different theme with like a different corresponding aesthetic. So I feel like there is something for everyone, like because it changes all the time. After a break, more with Tavi Gevinson, editor-in-chief of the online magazine Rookie. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Jesse Thorne here, proprietor of MaximumFun.org. Look, we had a great time in the Poconos and everything, but there's no way we are forgetting about our annual trip to Lake Arrowhead here in Southern California. So, unless the world ends first by Mayan prophecy... Max FunCon West will be held May 31st through June 2nd, 2013. Join us for a showcase of elite stand-up comedy performers in the woods, plus informative classes and talks from some of the best creative minds in the nation. If you've been to Max FunCon before, get ready to reunite with your old friends. And if you're a first-timer, get ready to make a whole ton of new ones. Registration will open up on Black Friday, November 23rd, the day after Thanksgiving, at Max FunCon. It's basically the greatest holiday present anyone could ever get. Act fast. Max FunCon pretty much always sells out, and we don't expect this year to be any different. So, Black Friday at MaxFunCon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tavi Gevinson, who's the brains behind the online magazine Rookie. The site's about fashion and feminism and life advice for teenagers, and she works on it all after she gets home from high school every day. You are are the editor of this book. You've also wrote a number of pieces in it, including, uh, among others, a a very amusing and informative sweater taxonomy. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Thank you. All of my preferred sweaters you associated with grandpas, but we're going to let that pass. They were my favorites as well. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, one of the articles that I found really uh, inspiring 
because it's an issue that comes up for me personally Mm -hmm. often, uh, was one about how to actually not care what other people think. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a trope, I think, in teen teen literature or uh, in the cultural production for teens Mm -hmm. that is just like, hey, do what you want to do. Yeah, right. Skateboard. (laughs) (laughs) Put on your knee pads. Um, And that, as you sort of dismiss that, just right at the top you're like that's not anything that's not functional it's not like it's a nice idea but it's not Mm. an actual it's not actually helpful to people so what is the thing that you think that is actually helpful to people because i think like oh i go out and do these crazy things and i think like hey good work believing in yourself there jesse and then someone says something mean about me on the internet that i don't even know that doesn't even make sense and i'm like oh I really care about that. Right. Unexpectedly. Right. Um, it's tricky. It's like an everyday battle. I think, um, I guess, I don't know. I have to reread that piece myself. <laughs> I mean, I... remember <laughs> why you were... <laughs> I mean, I think part of it is like, I, I was talking about this with my friend last night, so it's especially on my mind, but I think so much about like, my pop culture intake, which is very weird, but I like, like I'm very specific about not looking at certain sites, even though they're perfectly harmless. I'm very, like, I don't ever want to watch commercials. I think because my time is really limited, I just always want to make sure that I'm just filling my brain with things that I like or that are helpful somehow. But I guess, like, I, um, like, part of that is just kind of brainwashing yourself and surrounding yourself with, um, like, role models or images that um, remind you of what this is all really about. Like, um, I don't know, when I have to do something like be a kind of public person and promote this book... And I want to milk the fact that I have this story as a young fashion blogger that a mainstream news outlet will like. I do have to just remind myself that what this is about and it's about promoting the book and the book is about liking yourself. And um, I guess it's easy to like I said, like I am a fan of a lot of mainstream culture, um, but I also have to remind myself of like why I like Beyonce because I do think it's unhealthy to read about her when all they praise her for are like pretty superficial qualities um and because that does like seep into your mind and you start to believe those things are important and that's when I like going back and instead reading about either reading something about Beyonce that is insightful or reading something about someone who like like a scientist or someone um and you just remember, I mean, the things that make someone worthy of being written about at all in, like, mainstream media can be so arbitrary at times. Um, and that's also part of the reason where I'm like, maybe I'll grow up and no one will care about me anymore. That's okay. Um, but in some ways, I feel like it's good to read a tabloid or whatever just because you see, like, oh, those people are, like, skinny and rich whatever and they are not happy or they're not necessarily doing anything that is contributing anything and um 
that's also sometimes when I can tolerate it why I watch like a dumb reality TV show about some crazy family living in L.A. Because I'm like, oh, those people have all of these things and they are obviously like just so irrational as people and not happy and not doing something that they love. And I mean, that's a little cruel, (laughs) but I don't know. I mean, it's all it's all like mental pop culture, self brainwashing. (laughs) That's that's an admirable, admirable goal. Self brainwashing. (laughs) I mean, because, you know, in your head that like this stupid thing you're reading, you don't actually care about it, but you still click on it and then it still stays with you in some way. And I would rather just surround myself with things that make me want to be like a better person or smarter or interested in more things. And um, none of those things do that. I I can really relate to that part. I can Hmm. really relate to the idea of I I gave I outside of live sports, which you can't really watch without commercials. Mm hmm. Although I do, I do enjoy my MLB.TV subscriptions. It doesn't put <gasps> commercials on it. But outside of that, I've pretty much given up commercials. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I, I only will occasionally get accidentally tricked into clicking on something that yeah. leads to a website whose values I do not share. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's hard to control that intake tube. But no, it is. When you get something going, it really you're you you feel a lot better. In the same way that those people yeah. who, uh, uh, in the same way that those people who like uh, go on health food diets tell you about how they feel better all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's kind of, and that's why I'm glad that I do go home to Oak Park, and I am not doing this as like half of my job. And I, um, I mean, I don't think of this interview here as like the same thing as Access Hollywood or whatever, but. We're both about the same amount of popular and rich. (laughs) Um, And handsome. (laughs) But, um, I mean, I don't know. I'm just glad to get a, that I go home to like my room and my friends and my dog and my books and. I don't know. I mean, I probably sound like some hermit and anyone listening is probably like, but I don't want to hate the world. And the thing is, I don't hate the world, but I I just want to find the parts of it that are really good and of, of value to me and just focus on those. You went on this uh, tour, this nationwide tour where you did all these sort of um, readings and, and I guess like installations. Yeah. And um, part of this tour was people bringing you stuff. <laughs> um, and I wonder if you could describe for me some of the people that brought you stuff and, and what they brought you. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So um, for uh, this summer, myself and a few members of the Rookie staff took this road trip uh, from New York to L.A., And in L.A., we created this installation that was like a giant mutant dollhouse teenage bedroom. So we asked girls to bring us like some kind of souvenir from their own rooms or adolescence or whatever, um, even though the majority of them are still experiencing that. And we got, oh, my gosh, let's see. um, Someone gave me a VHS of the movie The Parent Trap, the Lindsay Lohan version. Um, Someone gave me... 
an empty journal like as a gift for me but I love it because in the front she wrote a Taylor Swift quote that says if like you're lucky to be different don't change um I um um, 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 I'm a real I'm really big about like bonding with people over Taylor Swift um uh me too (laughs) I got oh one girl gave us these bracelets that she made as a teenager that said like one just says poems, and I like that because it's just so, like, angsty. Like, I'm going to make a bracelet and it'll just say poems. That is really cool. Yeah. You can't – people in the audience can't see me, but I am super He's excited about out. this poems bracelet. It's a really great bracelet. She also had one that said – I don't know how to pronounce it, but Philistine, Philistine, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's so weird that you made this, but c- cool. Um Oh my God! What else? I mean, they I love poems because it's just—it's yeah. just an expression of the idea of expression. Yeah, right. It's like you know what—we're gonna get out there. We're gonna share some <laughs> stuff. I need to graffiti that somewhere. <laughs> just poems. It's nice. I—it's so teenagery in the best way. I'm trying. I mean, we got a lot of great, you know, homemade jewelry stuff like that. Um. Oh, what else? I mean, so much good stuff. And then I went home. So we were in L.A. for a month, and I had shipped, like, a box of stuff from my own house to here for the installation. But then we also had all the stuff girls gave us, and then also a lot of vintage shopping from the trip. Um, And I ended up shipping five boxes home to Oak Park, like, big boxes. And I only recently decided to, like, even try and go there and so I have been going through them now and you know before I was like by the end of the installation and also technically the end of rookie's first year I was like so drained of this aesthetic of like collage DIY virgin suicide-y stuff and I swore I would put it all in a time capsule but I just started going through all of it again and like I can't help it and my room is becoming a mess again because I don't want to put anything away. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tavi Gevinson. She first became known as a fashion wunderkind. She started a style blog when she was only 11. Now she edits an online magazine for teenage girls called Rookie. The site's first year of content is available in book form as Rookie Yearbook One. I want to ask you about uh, thrift store shopping. Yeah. This is an important topic in the book. Um, Uh... There's a, a an excellent guide to thrift store shopping that you you didn't write, um, but I know that you're you uh, started your fashion blog particularly on your based on your enthusiasm for secondhand shopping. Yes. Um, tell me what it is that you like about thrift store shopping because I have a hard time explaining its appeal to people who don't get it sometimes. Well, it's like like I could draw you like a whole spider web diagram of it. Like there like on one hand it's great because Let's do some mind mapping, Tavi. Okay. <laughs> At the center I'm drawing a circle and writing thrift store shopping. Here. I've got some lines coming out. Let's read it. We need like a dry erase board. I mean, okay, so one thing it's cheap, whatever, that's great. Um another thing, the thrill of the hunt. Thirdly, like I said, like at the same time that I started my blog and got interested in fashion and like Cindy Sherman and the idea of having all these different personas, um, it was really thrilling to me that like you could buy something and someone had it before you. 
And to my friends, that was like the grossest thing. Like they're like, you don't know who's worn that. And I'm like, exactly. There's something nice about an object uh, that comes to you secondhand because specifically because you don't know what its story is. And to me, that in part means that its story could be anything, that its story is completely full of possibility. Mm -hmm. Something you buy new, you know what it is. You know where it came from, even if you don't know literally where it came from. It's starting with you, roughly. Yeah. Maybe some sadness in a third world country, and then you. Right. Um, But... Something that something that comes to you secondhand could it's it's magical simply because it could have come from anyone or anything. Yeah, I mean that's what I like about it. Just and I get really sad when I think about like you know all the estate sales and things that just go to waste, or when my mom is like. And she sees me wearing, like, clothes from the 60s or 70s, and she's like, I had a bunch of clothes like that when I was younger, but, like, I had to give them all away or throw them out or whatever. And I'm like, where are they? Like, it's such a tragedy to me. But I, um, I don't know. I got to interview Daniel Klaus for Rookie, and it's in the book, too. And he was saying before, if you just went off the highway to a random little town, there would be, like, a little junk shop and everything and now there's an Applebee's and um that absolutely kills me but I just try and remember that the things then that are really special will be especially special well uh Tavi Gibbonson I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye it was great to talk with you great to talk with you too thank you so much for having me Tavi Gibbonson is editor and founder of Rookie Mag online at rookiemag.com their new book is called uh, Rookie Yearbook One. Uh, She's the editor of that as well. You can find it in bookstores now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Michael Ian Black does not shy away from the personal. One of his recent books is A Candid Look at the Foibles of Family Life. Like his stand-up, the book's filled with biting sarcasm, often at the expense of the people closest to him. But just behind that facade is the true sense that Michael wants to improve himself, both as a father and as a husband. Mike came to perform at Max FunCon East in the Poconos just a little while ago. He had his young daughter with him and invited her to watch his set from on stage. Even with her there, literally sitting right next to him in a chair, Michael didn't hold back. So a few years ago was the first time my kids were old enough to kind of conceive of their own Halloween costumes. And as a parent, like, that was really exciting because I couldn't wait to see what they would be for Halloween because kids have amazing imaginations. They could be anything. Couldn't wait. This is what my kids decided to be. My son decided to go as a pirate. My daughter decided to go as a princess. No, don't, don't patronize her. 
the least creative costumes in the world. The most hackneyed, tri- like just with a little more effort, they could have been amazing costumes. You know, if my son had been like, I want to be a pirate, I want to be a Somali pirate, I would have been like, good costume. If my daughter had been like, I want to be a princess, I want to be a Jewish American princess. Good costume. No. Pirate princess. You know what the kid next door went as? A cat's tail. You understand? Not a cat. Cat's tail. When he came to our house and explained to me that he was not, in fact, a pipe cleaner, which also would have been excellent, but was a cat's tail, I did not give that child candy. I gave him a hug, and I wrote him a check for $100. The next year, I say to my son, what are you going to be for Halloween? He goes, I'm going to be Frankenstein. I said, fine. <laughs> Halloween comes, comes downstairs. He's wearing an old suit jacket of mine, old suit pants, ripped up shirt. His face is painted green. He's got like a makeup scar across his head, and he's doing this. <laughs> and I look at him, and I go... What are you supposed to be? He goes, I'm Frankenstein. I said, no, you're not. You're the creature. Frankenstein was the doctor who invented the creature. Go upstairs and change. No, because if he goes around knocking on doors and tells everybody that he's a Frankenstein when he's the creature, guess who looks like an idiot? I do. <laughs> Last year was probably the best year in terms of creativity. I say to my son, when are you going to be for Halloween? He goes, I'm going to be Dr. Coconut. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is Dr. Coconut? So I say to him, what the hell is Dr. Coconut? He goes, I'm going to get a big coconut costume. And to him, in his fevered little mind, it's a given that you could walk into any store, any CVS or what have you, and be like, show me to your coconut costumes. And they will be like, right this way, sir. So that I just let go. I'm going to get a big coconut costume and a stethoscope. Dr. Coconut. And I think about that for a second. And then I say something to him that I don't think I've ever said before. I said, I love you. That was comedian Michael Ian Black with his daughter sitting right next to him on stage. 
We recorded that set at Max FunCon East. We just announced the dates of Max FunCon West, May 31st through June 2nd of 2013. Registration opens the day after Thanksgiving. You can find more information online at maxfuncon.com. After a break, treat yourself to an interview with Retta. She plays Donna on Parks and Recreation. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year! It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us at twitter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Retta, started as a mostly silent recurring character on NBC's Parks and Recreation. But over the five seasons of the show, she's become a regular and, let's be honest, a minor folk hero. (laughs) In the world of the show, her character's smarts and cool are a deep contrast to the madness and incompetence around her. She's self-centered and maybe a little judgy, but she's earned it. Maybe most impressively, her character is a mile away from the sweet nothings and or neck-popping sass masters that black women are often pushed toward in TV comedy. Here's her character, Donna, with Aziz Ansari on the show, celebrating a holiday that's become a beloved institution for Parks and Recreation fans. Donatella! T-Mobile! Three words for you. Treat yourself. Treat yourself 2011! Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year. I just got a live treat yourself right here in MaximumFun.org studios. Welcome to the show, Rena. Why, thank you. Um, I <laughs> I have to say that's like that's, that is one of my favorite things that has happened on television in the last ten years. Yeah. I mean that absolutely, nice. absolutely sincerely. It, yeah, people are a fan. I heard that you got this part in part because of because uh, <laughs> I like a, the shop. <laughs> yes, a very off-topic conversation with uh, with the Parks and Recreation showrunner. Uh, yeah, I went in for it. I I always say I'm good at the the meeting. I'm at, I'm good at the go see, the audition not so much. Wait, the go see? The go see? Hollywood. That's, talk. Yeah, that's t- you know like the meeting. Sometimes you just take meetings. You don't necessarily have an audition. But I had the audition, and it was a room full of producers, casting director, casting associate. And after the audition, um, Mike Shore noticed my watch. And he was like, oh, that's watch. Can I, that's a cool watch. Can I see it? So he came over. And then I had just gotten it. It might have been like the second day that I wore it. You're wearing a pretty serious yeah, first watch right watch. now. I'm into watches. But the one that I had was like super bling um, toy uh, called toy, a toy watch. And I just kept talking about how I got it on such a good sale. It was this new... <laughs> This new thing online called the Guilt Group, and you have to be invited. I'd be glad to invite. It's out of control. But I feel like because I was so chatty at that point, he probably thought, yeah, we can put her on the show. You went to uh, Duke, if I remember correctly. So did you, when you graduated, or when when you went away to college, did you have the idea that you were going to go into the entertainment industry, or was was that not in the cards at the time? No, I was going to be a doctor. I was pre-med. I had every intention. When I first got into school, I thought I'd just be your run-of-the-mill doc. And then while I was there, I decided neurosurgery was going to be my thing. Um, when I first got there, I was like, 
you know, I'll just be your family doctor. You thought that wasn't but, ambitious enough. Yeah, but, but no, but because I, I was really into science, I was like, ooh, I'll, I'll, I want to do some kind of surgery. And by the time I graduated, I, I, they had started work on the neurosciences buildings on campus. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do neuroscience. So where in all of this, I'm going to become a doctor, does the idea I'm going to become a comedian and actor come in? Um, it wasn't until I had graduated. I was living by myself for the first time. And I, I used to, I watch a lot of TV. I, I, I still, I, I try to watch a lot of TV, but I did when I was younger. And because I was living by myself, I used to talk to the TV a lot. So I remember watching um, Central Park West. CPW. Yeah, it was, I think it was. It was like a Melrose Darren, Place Yeah, it was a Darren thing. Star. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, I could do this. At the, at the minimum, I could do this. Um, and that's when I decided. <laughs> what, watch the show? No, perform in it. <laughs> and that's when I decided, you know what? I, I wanted to get into it because I knew I'd done it in, in college and done well. Um, and then, and then I decided after that, that I wanted my own sitcom. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who was in medical school at the time saying, well, why don't you do stand up? Don't all stand ups get their own show? You know, cause that's all we knew. We lived in North Carolina and we saw Tim Allen and Roseanne and Brett Butler and all these people on TV. So I was like, yeah. So then I decided to start stand up. And so I used to do stand up at night. I, well, I think we had. I think the open mic was on Wednesday or Thursday night. So I used to do the open mic at Charlie Goodnights, and that's how I started. I want to play a clip of you doing stand-up. This is my guest, Retta, talking about, um, we'll say, learning about her nurturing side. I don't have any um, pets of my own because I'm very allergic to short-haired animals, which is bad because I recently found out that I can't have kids. Um, let me tell you how I found out. About two and a half weeks ago, I had to babysit my nephew, and let me tell you, that little bastard is Satan in Granimals. <laughs> two hours alone with him, and I knew, whoo, <laughs> I can't have kids. <laughs> it's not physical. I will kill them. <laughs> At what point is throwing all of my CDs into the bath festive? Because <laughs> he could not have thought it was funnier. And I don't know if it was the actual act of getting them into the water that he found amusing or me catching him going, you son of my brother. <laughs> How many times does a person have to say, no, stop it and put that down or I'll cut you before the point is made. <laughs> his mother had the nerve to name him Damon. I was like, that's awfully close to Damon, don't you think? When she's not around, I call him Damien or Lil Six for short. Were you scared when you were in that sort of in-between state that you had come across the country and you had quit your stable job and stable career path? Mm, no, I wasn't. I've never been scared. I would say that I've always been anxious. I've always, it's always been in my head that I will be successful in that I will get to do what I came here to do. I just didn't know when because I don't have any control over it. So I think it wasn't so much fear. It was I lived in anxiety. I was like, oh, when am I going to get off my friend's floor? When am I going to get out of the studio apartment? When am I going to be driving this 84 Mustang with no back window? Like I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't know when. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Retta, is an actress and a stand-up comedian. She went from a job in the pharmaceutical industry to working as a stand-up to a regular role on NBC's Parks and Recreation. I wondered if you got auditions for the kinds of things that you wanted to do. No. No. I got a lot of auditions to play very loud and ignorant, talking like this, like stuff like that, which I can do when I'm with my friends because it amuses me, but it's hard for me to do seriously. And I have to, I've had to learn that it's just a part. I didn't like to do it because I was afraid people were going to think that's what I was. And I had to learn that you're an actor and you play the role. You don't let the role play you. So it wasn't so much, I I just had a fear. I had a fear people were going to think I was just, you know, ignorant and and crazy because that's a lot of the parts that I got to audition for. Um, I also, I I didn't get the parts because it was so uncomfortable to do. Had my friends been casting those roles, I would have gotten those parts. But because it was people that I I wanted to respect me, I thought I wasn't going to get respect going out for those sorts of things. Um, I also went out for a lot of nurses, parking enforcement, um, receptionists, that sort of thing, which is not necessarily um, it's not bad. It's just not that interesting, you know, at least at least the ones that I went out for. One of the things that I love about your character on Parks and Recreation is that Donna is so much not that. (laughs) She's so smart and so sort of self-possessed in a way that people barely get to be on TV unless they're the ethnic group and gender and so forth that people think everyone's going to identify with. You know what's so funny, though, is by the time that I auditioned for for Donna Meagle, I had gotten to a point where I was like, okay, I'm going to be stuck doing these characters. Even the, Not that I necessarily thought that they were going to try to make Donna be that, because in the audition, the, the scene that they wrote was Donna, I can't remember who the, who the author was, but uh, she had a favorite author, and there was a character who was supposed to be new to the office who was trying to make friends, and so pretended that that author was also their favorite author and was trying to get an in with Donna that way. So it wasn't necessarily something, you know, the part, at least not in my head, wasn't going to be some ghetto loudmouth in the corner, but I, I had honestly had gotten myself in my head in uh, to a place where, you know what, you you may have to do that, and you're gonna have to find a way to work your way through it so you can get to the parts that you want to do. Tell me a little bit about how um, how Donna started to change from a person in the background to a real character. Um. Did just did sometimes just just pages show up and you'd be like, hey, this yeah. is a real thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, I I can't remember what episode it was where I had more than two lines in the episode because I don't read the scripts. I I like to hear them in the table read. So I would just you know uh, search Donna in on my computer, see where she popped up made sure there were no words that I didn't know how to pronounce 
and then go to the table read and enjoy. Essentially, enjoy. And the table read is where all of the cast members get together before the episode starts shooting to run through the script. Yeah. And they sometimes do one so final So the writers and producers pass. can yeah. hear the jokes, see if things work, that sort of thing. And um, I remember the first time where, like, it sh- <laughs> Donna popped up, like, ten times. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk this episode. Because seriously, I was, like, cruising. <laughs> I was just, I'd show up three days a week. Sit at that desk, not have anything to say. Every once in a while, have something smart ass to say, and then pack my stuff up and go home. And it was fine. And then when I first started um, getting, you know, getting dialogue, I was like, "Oh, look at me! I'm fancy. I'm actually an actor." And I, 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 I feel like the the Pawnee Rangers, which is where the Treat Yourself um, took place. Uh, I feel like that episode. Kind of, it gave her not just a personality, but people were excited to actually see me involved in an episode, and you feel you de- you definitely feel a little more a part of the group. One of the things I like most about Donna is that while she's generally quiet, generally hangs back a little bit. Um, when she is brought into the mix, she has absolutely no problem telling people what to do. Like she's very confident in her own opinions, yeah. and th- I want to play. Uh, I want to play a scene where that's the case. Um, uh, this is this is you are giving dating advice in this clip. You are at a bar with the character Anne, who's played by Rashida Jones, and you are giving her uh, dating advice. And in fact, sort of. You're you're standing just off to the side as she tries to talk to a cute guy. Hi, I'm Ann. Brian. What's your occupation? I'm a manager at a sporting goods store. No way, me too. Seriously? Which one? No, I'm not. Um, I I was just ribbing you. What are you drinking? <laughs> yeah. What? Oh, I don't know. I I couldn't hear you. So you just laughed and said. Yeah? Yeah. Excuse us. That was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Did you grow up in the woods? Are you Nell? From the movie Nell? (laughs) (laughs) People love that line. Well, because it's it's a really tremendous line. And I think also it's really telling for this character that, you know, the world of Parks and Recreation is a bunch of sweet people who often sort of flail their way through their lives or <laughs> don't get it <laughs> or sort of blindly galump their way through their lives and so your character Donna is sort of the one who's who has some perspective and a little bit of insight on things that are going on even if maybe she's half a step removed yeah i don't know i feel like she, she although she's in Pawnee i don't know why she's still in Pawnee i'm waiting to find out why she stays but she's has for some reason her horizons are a little more broadened and she she gets it and every once in a while feels the need to make sure everybody else gets it. I think that's why she and Tom get along because they see beyond the small picture that is Pawnee. I feel like, um, and correct me if, if you don't think this is the case, but I, I think that uh, that race is part of why your character and Aziz Ansari's character see beyond into the outside world on this show because Pawnee is 
you know, necessarily such a homogeneous place that if you have some element of outsiderdom, Aziz Ansari obviously is um, uh, Indian American, um, it's it gives you like it, it gives you a little look. It gives you a different angle on things. I guess so. Because um... I think that part of I mean Donna is like an ultimate insider outsider. You know what I mean? Like she knows what's up, right? But she's always and she's part of the group, but she's also always half a step away. And she, yeah, she is. That that is true. Um, and then you know when we found out that I was. <laughs> that Donna's related to genuine. Yes, <laughs> I was I just mean, about to bring that up. <laughs> that she, she, she's had it. She's definitely had a taste of the outside, even if it's through her cousin. Um, she, she's familiar. I think she also she's also seen. It's not all it's cracked up to be. So I would rather be a star in my little pond, you know, than than work my way out into the bright lights. I don't know. I um but I feel like th- they do that a lot on television. They allow the minority to be like uh, at least you know in the last 15 year 15 20 years, you know, the the usually the computer nerd is always the black guy. It's not you know, it it like even in Mission Impossible back in the day, he the 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 black guy was was the uh technical guy. I think there's just been a thing where they at least have tried <laughs> to let you know that the minorities are aware <laughs> of what's out there and what and and what's interesting and and not so small towny if you will I don't know I don't know what it is there's something to me about I mean there's that kind of classic We'll make a black guy the engineer. Right. I mean, the thing that I always think of when I think of that is, and this is a very odd cultural reference, but the Burger King Kids Club, where the one black guy, the Burger King Kids Club was this group of cartoon, cartoon children uh-huh. who encouraged you to eat Burger King. I remember very well because I grew up like uh, 300 feet from a Burger King. <laughs> but the Burger King Kids Club, there was this character named Wheels, mm-hmm. who was a black guy in a wheelchair who loved to do science. That and, sounds a lot like the the little black kid from Malcolm in the Middle. It's a real it's a real kind of like it, it really felt like they were just checking a series of right. boxes, right? So there's that simple reversing expectations thing where the only thing that's different essentially about that character is they're just like, well what if we cast a black guy in this yeah. character? One of the cool things about Donna, and the reason I wanted to bring up Genuine, mm-hmm. is because there is some race consciousness to the character. Like, the character is specifically black. Mm-hmm. And Genuine is the kind of cultural touch point that gets sprinkled into the show from time to time. You know, like, it's as though her, like we found out that her uncle was Frankie Beverly or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's right. not something that you could write for a white character. Right. So it's not defin- it's not the pure definition of the character, but it is it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I honestly, I, the reason why I think they made Donna's cousin genuine is because they wanted to have Tom's reaction <laughs> to Donna's cousin being genuine because Tom has his finger on the pulse of of what's hip, what's hop. <laughs> 
what's black, what's hot. Like especially his, circa ten years ago. Yeah, he. But he, you know, it's more. That's more his thing, and I think they were able to use Donna to to just show more of that side of him. You know, and you know, I'm cool enough. You know, Donna's cool enough to be like, yeah, my cousin's genuine. Whatever. The funny, <laughs> the funny part about that is, um, and not really knowing who genuine is when Rashida is the only one on that set who really knows genuine. Like she's spent time with him. She she knew. She every went to song. high school with all the children of the Jacksons. You know what I'm saying? She's she sang every song. I couldn't remember. All I could remember was Pony. And she was like, oh, my God, you don't remember this? You don't remember that? And she's like, I cannot believe I have to pretend I don't know who Genuine is. It was pretty funny. So um, I want to ask you actually about singing real quick because I was watching your stand-up. There's a couple of moments here and there where you're unafraid to burst into song, like full-on singing. Like when I say singing, I'm not talking about – in fact, I'm going to play a clip here. And this is you talking about listening to classical music. And I have a question. Is there, is there anyone here who actually likes classical music? Okay, so there's a few people. I love classical music. Don't get me wrong. I'm still black. You know, I still kick the bass and pump up the volume. It's just that when I'm in my car and the windows are closed, you wouldn't know. So I'm driving down the street. I stop at a light. An older couple pulls up next to me. Now, keep in mind, all they can hear is the bass and they see me. Now, the woman on the passenger side, she looks across at me and she's like, it's that rap music again. That's when I let down my power windows. That's singing for real. Uh-huh. I can sing. My mother, I feel like my my mother is always like, whenever people say, oh, my God, Marietta can sing. She's like, yeah, she needs to use her voice for God. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Christ. I want to play one last Parks and Recreation clip. Um, this was a season, this was a, an episode, I, I think it was towards the halfway through, two-thirds of the way through last season where... Everyone in the cast uh, went on this bonding slash hunting trip. (laughs) And your character, Donna, uh, (laughs) drives a Mercedes, of which she is very, 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 very (laughs) proud. Um, And in this scene, um, everybody is running outside and they discover that one of your bosses, Ron Swanson... Uh, has been shot, and also that something else has been shot. Donna? Donna? Are you okay? What, is it your heart? Are you having trouble breathing? Oh my God, that's nothing compared to what I did in rehearsal. <laughs> your your car window got shot. Yes. 
Yes, her baby got hurt. Did it? Did did you get a script that had a stage direction? Donna goes totally bonkers. No, I was going to say something that starts with ape and ends with a word I can't say on the radio, but bonkers will have to suffice. Um, no, it said. I think it said she's upset, and I think it says she's crying. It says she's crying. Because Donna's so cool. I mean, like, one of the things about Donna is she's always cool. I think, thinking about it now, I bet when they wrote it, Greg Greg Daniels directed that episode. And I was very afraid of Greg until this scene, this particular scene. I was, he just made me so nervous. Why? He seems like such a nice man. He made me so nervous. He's a real comedy genius. Yeah, yeah. Is it because he's not talking? Yeah, he's he's a man of a few words, and the, the words that he he says are very important when, you know, when he's saying it. And I remember when I go, when we go to do this scene, we go to rehearse it. And I, I mean that, that the way, what they aired is nothing compared to how I, like I was bawling, screaming <laughs> on the ground, like falling on the car. And he fell out. He laughed so hard. And the, the the crew was behind the, the cabin, and so all they could hear was the screaming. So they thought someone had gotten hurt. They didn't know what was going on. And once I made him laugh, I think he was like, well, that's too funny. We have to use we have to do that <laughs> instead of, you know, because I think he just thought I would just be crying and upset. But when I lost it, like crazy lost it, he was like, all right, we're going to do that. That works. There's this great payoff moment to that, <laughs> to that scene where – uh, someone's coming up the driveway, and uh, I can't remember who, but somebody shoots at Aziz. him. Aziz, Aziz shoots Haverich. at him, like trying to protect everybody from an invader, right. and it turns out to be the auto body yes. guy. <laughs> yes, I was like, "Don't hurt him. He's got to fix the car." <laughs> <laughs> well, Retta, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It Thanks was really a pleasure to have Jesse. you. I appreciate it. Retta plays is a stand-up comedian and actress. Uh, she plays Donna on Parks and Recreation, which you can catch Thursday nights on NBC. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. There's a lot of wonderful things about the onion. I think that at this point, America agrees the onion is wonderful. But there's one thing about the onion that I love most. It's this trick of crashing the grand into the mundane. They do it better than anyone on earth. They take the self-important, hyper-narrativized form of the daily news, and then they drive something super plain into it. Like, one of their headlines was, Area Man Makes It Through Day. They take big, huge people and institutions, and then they make them small and normal. Christ returns for his old things. It's beautiful. This stuff works in print, of course, but newspapers are dying. The local color story's been a staple of the onion since its days as a Madison, Wisconsin pizza flyer, but it's less recognizable now. Local newspapers barely exist. So the onions turn to video. They parody news, and it's great, but they've also turned to reality TV. 
They've got a nearly perfect real-world parody, for example. It's a very simple name. It's called Sex House. There's also another series that I love even more. It's called Lake Dredge Appraisal. Or actually, formally, it's called Helcom County Municipal Lake Dredge Appraisal. Oh, God, I love Lake Dredge Appraisal. You've seen the Antiques Roadshow, right? It's that, but for stuff dredged from a lake. Now, what you have here is a collection of chicken wire and, and lake debris. Mm-hmm. You see how there's, there's loose wire here? Okay, I see it. Well, that is what gave it away. That is clearly chicken wire. Okay, I figured. Now, chicken wire is worth about 40 cents per square yard. But uh. this is very tangled, and that depresses its value. I'd appraise the chicken wire at about 15 cents. Nonfiction TV is almost ritualistically formal. We know every move. We know about the setup and the payoff and the reaction shots and the cliffhangers. You can feel the path of a reality show as it happens. So what does that ritual become when instead of being about a million-dollar payday, it's just a nice man named Kim and some things that constitute, I don't know, a 45-cent payday. So we can determine that this pot is made of tin. Mm-hmm. And you can see here there is some damage to the piece. Well, it might have gotten mangled in the suction hose. That's not going to affect the value a whole lot. Now, the raw tin in this pot is worth about 45 cents. Oh. Wow. But you would need to get all this plastic off of here first, which which would cost you more than that, so you would lose money on the deal. There's something disquieting about Lake Dredge appraisal. I think it's just those subverted expectations. Our bodies expect the rhythms of these shows. We know TV's trying to manipulate us. We see how it's manipulating us. We just line up for more. It's like the sitcom or the police procedural. We tune in to get exactly the jolts that we already knew we would get. But what happens when it plays out wrong, when it's outside of what we expect? Well, you, you've uncovered some Zionist literature here. What are you saying like that for? Like what? Nothing. Obviously, these books have suffered some damage from being at the bottom of a lake for several years. Oh, yeah? I would say you could probably sell these books for 10 to 25 cents to someone who's studying the effects of lake water on different types of paper? Yeah, yeah uh, that wasn't what I was hoping to hear. Uh, look, if you have a problem with my appraisal, you are welcome to go on Judge Dredge like everyone else in this town. You know, or maybe I'll just go to somebody who's not so anti-Israel. <laughs> Excuse me? I am not anti-Israel. You've been running Israel down this whole appraisal. I have nothing but respect for the Jewish people. The other day, a friend and I were saying that the anti-Israel sentiment is the last socially acceptable form of racism in this country. And Santonio had a good point. He said... Santonio, of course. This is absurd. Then pledge your loyalty to the state of Israel. I am sorry, but I refuse to do anything to compromise my appraisals. All right, they're going to hear about this at the next Dredger's Israel Public Affairs Committee, you bet. Those forced grand narratives, those rhythms, the expectation of payoff. The Onion satirizes those. It's a satire of media, a bitter one sometimes. But what's wonderfully warm about Lake Dredge appraisal is what's wonderfully warm about the Onion generally. That's this. The medium is satirized. 
but the subject comes out a hero by virtue of his very mundanity. To borrow the title of one of their books, it really is a fanfare for the area man. Our appraiser, Kim, he's a decent man, just trying to do a good job. His circumstances are difficult, maybe a little sad, but his quest, his quest is an honorable one. Items will be appraised. Accurately. God, I love Lake Dredge appraisal. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.